Hello and welcome to the Anishinaabe History Podcast. I'm Chris Wade. In the year 1906, legislation was enacted in Canada that made getting natural resources easier for Canadians. In Ontario, In Ontario, this was the year after Treaty No. 9 was first signed. Wilfrid Laurier was the Prime Minister of Canada, serving his third term in office. Treaty No. 9 was arranged to provide for easier access to resources by Canadians, and also to move Native people away from land desired by non-Native Canadians. Remember that in 1905 and 1906, Native people were not considered equals to white men in the eyes of Canadian law. By the time Treaty No. 9 was signed by its first signatories, the so-called Indian Wars of the United States of America was a recent memory. And yet, treaties are nowadays regarded as forgotten historical artifacts of a -a once-upon-a-time colonial past. And that's even though the treaties and the Indians the treaties regarded were foundational to Canada's creation. To put it in plain English, the treaties were a trick to steal land from the First Nations. What I mean is this. The Canadians played the long game, so to speak, in order to to convince various First Nations that signing onto a treaty was a good idea. But it was the signing of the treaties themselves that has led to the modern conditions on most Canadian First Nations reserves. In the Treaty 9 region, the negotiations for the treaty began years and sometimes decades before the treaty was actually signed. To get an idea of the insidious nature of treaty relations, let's go back to 1853. In 1853, European Jesuit missionaries were venturing into the wilds of the Boreal Forest looking for savage souls to save. At that time, north of Lake Superior, some of the native people were still relatively untouched by by Western civilization. This was the land of the Anishinaabek. Since Since at least the melting of the glaciers at the end of the last ice age, people have been living here. During the European fur trade, beginning in the latter half of the 17th century, explorers, adventurers, and entrepreneurs began to trickle into the resource-rich area. For the next 150 years, life did not change much for the Anishinaabek. As the new people arrived in the region from elsewhere, they were dealt with individually. There were no real border disputes to speak of, and the battles that were conducted were typically between the British and the French. To the Anishinaabek, 
the Europeans must have seemed basically like strangers doing strange things. While the British and the French took turns burning down each other's forts, the Anishinaabek went on with their daily lives as they had done for generations since time immemorial. But as the white population south of Lake Superior grew, they needed to occupy more land. This is when they set their sights north and west of the Ohio River Valley. So, after the implementation of the Trail of Tears in the United States in 1830, and after the signing of the Treaty of Laramie in 1851, more Western expansion was needed in order for European settlers to manifest their destiny. In 1850, treaty-making in Canada transitioned from focusing on homesteading to focusing on resource development. Furthermore, quote, These indigenous inhabitants would remain within their traditional homelands, no longer threatened with removal, as in the United States and even in Upper Canada under Bondhead's proposal. They were promised that their annuities would increase as the resources of the Crown improved, the so-called Escalation Clause, which was activated twice in 1874 and 1904. Their reserves were not limited in size to an arbitrary formula imposed by the Crown, and last but by no means least, their rights to hunt and fish for personal and commercial purposes were not made subject to government regulations. End quote. A couple of years later, in 1853, Jesuits were just beginning their holy work amongst the Anishinaabek north of Lake Superior. Southwest of Lake Superior, in 1858, Minnesota had become an American state. Deals and politicking occurred amongst the Americans, the British, and the various First Nations. Then, in 1862, the so-called Dakota Wars began in what is now southern Minnesota. A few years prior, the first Treaty of Laramie had already been broken. In 1867, Canada was recognized by the USA and Britain as a separate and distinct entity. The next year, in 1868, the second Treaty of Laramie was signed. In 1873, Treaty No. 3 was signed at Northwest Angle, near Kenora, Ontario. The Indian Act went into effect in 1876. It was a consolidation of previous acts in Canada regarding so-called Indians. Louis Riel, a Métis leader, nowadays considered a founding father of Manitoba, was hanged in 1885 for treason. Then, between 1890 and 1910, pulp and paper mills sprung up in Anishinaabek territory. Dams were built, railways constructed, mines developed, all positive things for Canadians at the expense of indigenous nations. All of it performed on treaty land. All of our family, friends and relatives, as we come forth and shake hands with the family here, we come forth to show our appreciation. We come forth to help out in times of need, just as we would in our own extended family and immediate families. Poundmaker, Cornell, Lau, and Chanka, the boy Sweepy, Puka. Yeah. 
In the Anishinaabe language, we call Lake Superior Kichigami. The word refers to the body of water having a large shore. In the Baraga Dictionary of the Ojibwe language, the word agaming is translated into English as on the opposite shore and also as on the shore. Baraga has an example, Kichigami, which he translates as on the other side of the great sea. There are many place names in Anishinaabe territory that contain the Agaming root word. For example, there is a place near the north shore of Kichigami called Gnugaming. There is also a place called Mishkigogaming, which if I'm translating correctly basically means Muskeg Shore. What are some other place names on Turtle Island containing the Gamic, Gamic, Kamic root word? Pekanjikum is an example. About 500 kilometers northwest of Kichigami is a place called Pekanjikum. Pekanjikum is way up in northwestern Ontario near the Manitoba border. It isn't only the geographic locations that utilize the Gamic root word. For example, I know people with the surname Kakagamic. This word is a contraction of the root words Kakake and Gamic. The root word Gamic as Baraga defined it refers to the ground. For examples, Baraga uses the words Anamakamik, which, which translates to underground, and Anabikamika, which is translated as there is a rising ground. So the name Kakagamik, which contains the word Kakage, which means forever, translates into English roughly as forever ground, or perhaps shoreline forever. There is an organization based in Sulacout, Ontario called Shibugama First Nations Council. The word Shibugama contains the root word Gamak, as I have been using it thus far. Baraga's dictionary has it as Agaming. I think the word Shibugama means something like extended shore. I asked my mother-in-law, but she didn't know. Other words with the Kamek root word include Kaministiqua, the name of a river, Kaminawataman and Agamawe, which are surnames, as well as Matagami, a region, and Kabatogama, a national forest in northern Minnesota. As I'm sitting here writing, I'm wondering what the Shushwap word Kamloops translates into. The Shushwap people live in what is now British Columbia. The word Kamloops is an anglicization of the Shushwap word Tkumloops, which translates as meeting of the waters. Is there an implicit reference to some sort of shoreline or ground at this particular meeting place? River mouths have been natural meeting spots for humans for countless generations. These ancient and natural meeting places were still being used by Anishinaabe people when the first Jesuits arrived on the north side of Kichigami.
One such Jesuit missionary was Dominique Duranquet, who kept a journal of his mission. Duranquet was on the northwest shore of Kichigami in the 1850s. In 1853, Duranquet was at a fort on Lake Nipigon, which is north of Lake Superior. From Fort Nipigon, he needed to travel west to Fort William. This trip would take him many days of travel by canoe. However, Duranquet was unable, due to the danger of traveling alone, of making the journey by himself. Dangers included drowning, starving, and getting lost. So he needed to travel with other people who also happened to be going west from Fort Nipigon. Duranquet was successful in convincing a group of native people to let him go along with them. He told them he had experienced traveling by canoe and would do as he was told. The group to whom he expressed himself was headed by two people. The first was a chief named Michimakwa. The second, a friend of the chief named Winjab. Throughout his journey, Duranquet described his encounters in his journal. For instance, in 1853, Duranquet wrote, These two men, Winjab and Michimakwa, were extremely opposite characters. Winjab was proud and domineering, and although much the junior, he seemed to be dominating his chief. Thanks to the latter's good nature, the two were always at peace with each other. At each camp, they shared the same fire, and when the weather was not good, they shared the same lodge. However, each had his own cooking pot and seemed to keep his game or fish for himself. At this last camp, they staged a ceremony very popular with the natives, and perhaps more so within their own tribe than elsewhere. It is used especially for health reasons, but the songs they mix into the ceremony give it a religious character. They arrange several branches in a circle, bend them inwards, and tie them at the top about three feet off the ground, then cover the structure with a cloth, making the structure as hermetically tight as possible. Inside the middle they place a red-hot stone. Then they slide their way inside totally naked. They are hardly there a few minutes when sweat begins to come out of their pores. A few people remain outside the lodge to make sure that it remains hermetically sealed, so that no vapor can escape. The lodge is so small that they are in a crouching position. However, they spend a long time in this posture. It seemed to me to have been at least half an hour. End quote. What Duranque described is called a sweat lodge. It definitely has a religious character, as Duranque put it, because it is an important aspect of our religion. The sweat lodge is like Mother Earth's womb, and the ceremony is very much like a spiritual rebirthing ceremony. They can be intense. Some sweat lodge ceremonies last all night long. Duranque's mission, as a holy man, was to convert the pagan aboriginals into Christians. It was thought that all non-Christian religious practices were false religions. Were European colonizers really that concerned with the souls of savages in the forests around Lake Superior? Of course not. The colonizers wanted the land. By converting aboriginals to Christianity, the new Christians 
could be convinced to give up their traditions and live on Indian reservations. Why would Aboriginal people want to live on Indian reservations? Likely, it was the belief in a better life. That's because it was difficult living in the woodlands around Kichigami, especially in harsh winters or if food was sparse. The fear of Wendigos, those frozen-hearted cannibals, was real. When talking with missionaries, many Aboriginal people learned the story of Jesus' rebirth and about the afterlife. These magical ideas would probably have fascinated people who already had such magical realities. For instance, when the Jesuit missionary Dominique Duranque asked an Anishinaabe man about his theology, the man, named Kiashk, pointed to a medallion he was wearing. Kiashk said, quote, I am the one who is represented at the center of this circle. I have died twice and now I am in my third life. In my first life I was happy. I had an abundance of all kinds of good things. Today I am far from being that happy. What I have has been acquired with great effort, and I am short of many things. But I expect, I hope for a change. The earth will not last forever. The small crosses drawn on the right indicate the number of years after which the world will end. On the bottom, shown standing, are the first parents of the natives. Above me is the sky, first the region of thunder. Lightning comes out of their beaks. Above the thunder and on each side are the abodes of the Manitous. I must say that I do not know what to say about these Manitous. I cannot say if they are good or bad. Finally, at the top, the Great Spirit is represented by two vertical bars and one horizontal that intersects the former. He is the one who makes all things and is the sovereign Manitou. He is one and he is three. End quote. Aboriginal peoples were not soulless savages when settlers, colonizers, and missionaries entered First Nations territories. Most indigenous peoples are very spiritual, often to the point of superstitious. Replacing one superstition for another superstition is not progress. Unfortunately, at the time, Christianity and European politics were very much one and the same. To be European was to be Christian, and to be Christian was to be European. This is why there was such a push for Christianity upon Anishinaabe people. Some First Nations chiefs and headmen were convinced by European clergy to sign treaties. For example, John S. Long, an author who wrote about Treaty No. 9, stated the following, quote, Three years before Treaty No. 9 was first signed, north of the height of land, word began to reach the non-treaty Ojibwe and Cree, through these Indian agents and the HBC officers and clergymen they consulted, that a treaty for far northern Ontario was in the works. End quote. The Ojibwe and Cree people consulted with HBC officers and clergymen because they were living in Anishinaabek territory in an official capacity with the British and Canadian governments. 
as the northern forests became inundated with non-Aboriginal hunters, trappers, prospectors, and rail workers, the Anishinaabek people realized that they needed to sign a treaty with the Crown. <laughs> A year after Treaty No. 9 was signed, changes to Ontario's Mining Act were made. After the changes, prospectors were then allowed free entry onto any so-called Crown lands that supposedly were either surrendered or otherwise not in use by Indians. Thus, the prospectors were allowed to stake claims and start mining. The problem was that this was all occurring on Aboriginal land. What the provincial riders of the Mining Act failed to realize, and still failed to realize, was that not all the land that was considered to be Crown land had actually been surrendered to Canada. That was one problem that still exists today. Another problem with the Mining Act and its implementation is related to the interpretation of some of the numbered treaties, specifically Treaty No. 9. The short version of the story is that Treaty No. 9 being written and explained in English to non-English speaking First Nations people was incomprehensible. And there are yet more problems. Here's what Karen Drake, Associate Professor in Lakehead University's Faculty of Law, wrote in 2015 regarding the Mining Act and Aboriginal Treaty Rights in Ontario. Quote, Ontario's amended regime still fails to comply with the Crown's duty to consult and accommodate Aboriginal peoples in at least three ways. First, some areas of Ontario are subject to Aboriginal title claims. Recording a mining claim within Aboriginal territory triggers the duty to consult, but the amended Mining Act still does not require consultation prior to the recording stage. Second, at least some treaties in Ontario, such as Treaty 9, protect the right to implement the laws of the First Nations signatories, including Anishinaabek laws. The early exploration activities permitted by the Mining Act violate Anishinaabek laws about land use and thus adversely impact a treaty right, again with no requirement to engage in prior consultation. Third, the new regulations run afoul of both Anishinaabe law and Canadian law by failing to allow sufficient time for Anishinaabe decision-making processes. For these reasons, the amended Mining Act is still unconstitutional and another round of amendments is required. End quote. What this means is that for over a century, the mining companies and explorers have been able to walk onto Aboriginal land and stake a claim. This is why there are mines in Aboriginal territory, 
but the owners of the mines are typically not Aboriginal. Proponents of maintaining the status quo argue that the duty to consult is not triggered simply by low-impact exploration activities because such activities do not adversely impact treaty rights to hunt and fish. What the Mining Act status quo proponents may fail to realize, however, is that the early exploration activities such as recording a mining claim do in fact impact Anishinaabek treaty rights to implement land use activities according to Anishinaabek legal principles and protocols about land use. In other words, the land is ours and we choose what we will do with it. The days of resource theft must end. In my opinion, the whole process from Christian missionaries to treaty signings to resource extractions has all been a slimy plan to steal from Aboriginal people for multiple generations. Sadly, the belief in a higher standard of living through a European lifestyle led to unfair treaties, Indian reservations, residential schools, and ultimately the continuing loss of our culture, language, and land. That's all for today's episode. Stay tuned for more episodes in the future. I'm Chris Waite, and this has been the Anishinaabe History Podcast.